and welcome back to Writing the Rapids, the show where I, Joe Balecki, talk to writers about writing. Very often, those writers have been recommended to me by writers who have previously been on the show. In the case of this month's guest, Charlene Elsby, she was recommended to me by Mike Klein. If you like the episodes I have done with him, you'll like this one, and if you like this one, go back and listen to those. I think you'll like them as well. Charlene Elsby has written Hexus, Psychros, Affect, and Musos. Her essays have appeared in Heavy Feather Review, Bustle Books, and the LA Review of Books, Philosophical Salon. She's on Twitter at Elsby Charlene. We also talk about her forthcoming book, Bedlam, from Apocalypse Party Press, and Letters to Jenny, which is part of the Talented Perverts series from Filthy Loot Press and so much more. Before we get into the conversation, let's ask you for some money. If you would like early episodes, patreon.com slash noisemakerjoe is a good place to go for that. For a small recurring donation of $2 a month, I'll give you these episodes a couple days before everybody else gets them. You can also toss a one-time donation over to me at paypal.me slash noisemakerjoe, or you can buy my book. It's called Tired. It's on Amazon. You can leave a review on Goodreads. You can also leave a review of this show on places like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. If you give it five stars, it'll be easier for people who don't already know me to find the show. You can also tweet about the show, and, and that's free too. So without further ado, let's get into my conversation with Charlene Elsby. Let's start with your philosophy work, because reading your fiction, I feel like a lot of it is informed by that, or at least kind of follows certain thought processes so let's start with that yeah so what are we going for like broad strokes history yeah let's start there and then i will uh i'll dig in where i feel like we should dig in all right all right so uh yeah i i have a uh pretty extensive background in philosophy i uh came into it as a, a wee undergraduate I was a uh, physics major at the University of Guelph and then realized that uh, if I wanted to talk about the deep and upsetting problems of the universe, philosophy was going to be more my thing. And I switched and then I got all the degrees that I could. I got a contract and then a tenure track position teaching as an assistant professor uh, at a Purdue satellite campus down in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I was there for about six years. Um, it actually relates to how I started writing again, because after they closed the philosophy department at my institution, uh, they let us choose where else we would like to work. So they, they we sp like spread the professors out over campus. Some went to math and history, and I went to the English department. And I'm like, okay, I'm in the English department. I better write a novel. Uh, which is something I had always used to do and then had given up on a decade and a half earlier. But that was like the stimulus for, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to be serious about it. Uh, and then I wrote Hexus. Okay. So yeah, I, I studied um, ancient philosophy for the most part, Aristotelian logic and metaphysics. I talk about truth, logic, things that don't exist, and uh, contemporary phenomenology. Okay. <laughs> so that's, that's fascinating that they kind of just like, one, that they would close the philosophy department. That feels 
very icky to me but then it's also interesting that they let you guys just kind of move around um <laughs> that's fascinating um i just think i honestly don't think they cared it's just like you know find your own place to live <laughs> i i guess it's better than just saying sorry go find a new job entirely oh, yeah they waited three years to do that yeah. um yeah. so I'm, I'm out of it now yeah um because you work for the Canadian government now? Is that what I saw? That's right. Okay. Mm -hmm. What do you do for that? Or can you not say? Is it top secret? <laughs> it's not that secret. I analyze data, uh, mostly representation self-ID data um, for grants for universities. So some of the grants we give to universities um, have equity targets involved where they have to uh, fulfill the requirements of maintaining uh, representation of equity-seeking groups, mm. the people who are granted funds. And I'm the one who runs the numbers to make sure that they're doing that. Oh, okay. Um, that's cool. So the interesting thing, too, ooh, in addition to that, is, is kind of what you studied. It feels like it's not the type of philosophy I see the writers on my twitter timeline talking about yeah um it, it feels like there's a lot more like neoplatonist uh francophile uh type of stuff going on um yep and i guess because i'm not familiar with the the aristotelian um direction that it goes um like i can kind of discern um from having like read um the descriptions of your philosophy books on on goodreads and and reading your fiction that it's definitely a more um i guess is it analytical as opposed to continental i do continental okay. i am a continental at heart and uh the way i got to aristotle was actually through the contemporary not contemporary almost contemporary french and german the continental philosophers okay uh, the phenomenologists because so what I did uh, for one of my for er, in graduate school uh, was to actually trace one of these concepts that is used in phenomenology all the way through back to Aristotle and just demonstrate its development over the past 2000 years to how it appears in the contemporary literatures. So I'm huge into phenomenology. And I know we talk to the same people on Twitter, so you probably know about Merleau-Ponty. Uh, I actually don't know if I've heard that name before. Okay. Big French guy. Absolutely important. And then there's, of course, the Delizians. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do a bit of that. Okay. It's, you know, it's in the milieu. I, uh, I wrote an essay about Logan Berry. Uh, to determine whether he was more of a phenomenologist or a Delusian <laughs> based on the Runoff Sugar Crystal Lake book. Okay. And that was a lot. Mm -hmm. And what did, you, what did you find? I determined that I... I golly. I, I, I promise I remember. <laughs> I think I declared he was a phenomenologist. Okay. I mean, you know, as soon as I'm done writing something, I forget what I said, but I'm pretty sure... Um, and I, I would have concluded that just because I think he's a good person mm. uh -huh. and all the good people are phenomenologists at heart. 
interesting. <laughs> um, fascinating. Where where should I start with phenomenology then? Because after this, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to go fill in all my blind spots that I've identified here. Yeah, go read the Mailer Ponty. Uh, phenomenology of perception is fantastic. Uh, but if you're into the really creepy metaphysical shit, it's the, the visible and the invisible. And that's the one that describes, you know, our perceptual reality in contradistinction to the transcendental basis of that reality, the underpinnings of our reality that somehow lurk beneath and control what it is we actually perceive. Mm. Okay. I will. I, f I feel so, um, uh, is that too much? No, it's Maybe not. It's no, I, I, I feel overwhelmed <laughs> with, with the whole phenomenology thing just cause, um, I, uh, I haven't really looked like into it from that direction before. Oh, um, I was impressed when you knew the difference between analytic and continental. <laughs> Tell me about that. Um, I don't even know if I have a good definition I feel feel like comfortable with. The idea in, in my head is like analytic is, is very like logic driven and doing proofs and kind of almost more like math. Um, whereas continental is all this sort of goopy body without organs. Let's um, try to make new terms and and redefine everything and that sort of thing. I see. I see. But your use of the term goopy makes me think that it's not necessarily an always positive impression. Um I mean No, I I don't think I necessarily have a, a sort of negative idea toward it. There there's some stuff. Um I'm kind of like turned off by a lot of the Jungian stuff. Um and I, I think part of that is is because of my interest in um, like the study of Western esotericism and how muddy Jung's um, alchemy stuff has, has made studying that um, because there's so many people who think that alchemy is like a philosophical thing or like has always been a philosophical thing when it's just a proto chemistry. Um, so it like, there's some of that stuff that just kind of frustrates me because it's stuff that's like in the way, but I'm also aware um, of the lack of knowledge I have. So it's like, as I'm sifting through things, I'm pretty sure it's not useful, but I have to sift through it anyway because I, I don't know enough to know that it's not useful. Um, and I, I don't know. I think I think the more I, I, I dig into like... Um, some some postmodern type stuff i get like frustrated by all the diagrams and wordplay that goes on yeah me too that i'm i'm so excited for you to read phenomenology then like marilyn ponty who's fairly in phenomenology the kind of stuff i do is was you know it's supposed to be a rigorous analytic approach to reality and then it was sometime after that i personally blame heidegger that's when it got goopy um mm. that's when he started like misreading greek words and then claiming that that had significance right um but the kind of stuff that i do is just like we take our 
uh, concrete reality and subject it to rigorous analysis until we can discern the essence of the phenomena that appear to us. And we develop systematically a metaphysics based upon that. Okay. That does feel like what my brain wants to do right now at this stage in my life. Um, especially as I sort of study the, you know, like Gnosticism and, and various um, mystic traditions, um, particularly like in yes. within Western esotericism. Like, I love those diagrams you get out of like Nagamati adjacent texts where it's like here's all of these like squares and diagrams and like yeah you can definitely like get to heaven like there's just a recipe of of brain things you need to do first um that's really enticing to me yeah the nag hammadi is something my first philosophy press professor told me to read and he became my philosophical mentor for the next however many years and we still hang out but yeah it's that kind of mysticism actually comes out of the calculating rigorous analysis that we do as opposed to you know it's not divined from uh i actually i'm not gonna say that nothing is inspired or you know divinely given but uh this these things are discerned through some kind of uh, some kind of process that takes effort that you can do on purpose. Um, that's how I ended up in philosophy in the first place is because this is something I was, you know, wanted to do naturally, except uh, you need a method for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Some kind of learned method that, that seems to work. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. I wonder if this is, is at all associated to where I found a block when I was into science, like in high school, taking, um uh taking ap physics because there was a brief moment there where i was like i think being like an astrophysicist would be good um and <laughs> we we were talking about light and just like the fact that the primary colors of light and the primary colors of pigment are different and that when you mix them together they make different things and it's like okay but but why Right. Like all of my I, I had such a hard time just sort of uh, accepting that something was a thing and wanting to know why beyond what I had any sort of like uh, factual, knowledgeable basis for. Right. Like I was asking quantum questions in a high school advanced physics class that was doing only algebraic physics. It was. Um, exactly. And if you look at myself. That no, 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 not at all. If you look at the actual, like, yes, I was reading those textbooks. And if you, you know, read the entire physical description, and then I, I encountered the same phenomenon where at the bottom of the page, there's a footnote, and it says, well, you know, we say this, but actually color is a psychophysical phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, well, then why aren't we studying the psychophysical phenomenon? If we're only able to account for, you know, light bends in water to this degree, um, but yeah, how am I seeing it differently than that? And, you know, why and okay, uh, how do the forms of perception color everything we are taking in? And if we understand that the forms of perception are filtering reality for us, then we really should be studying consciousness. Yeah. As an yeah. And so, yeah, we're going quantum here again. <laughs> 
Right. We need to have a physical system that doesn't just assume that observation is reliable, uh, which is the basis of empirical fix. Um, but as soon as you, like the definition of empiricism is observable, observable how by the senses and then, well, what's beyond the senses, the things that, you know, organize the senses for us to make the perceptual data comprehensible. These are the things I wanted to know about. And they just, they just, they wanted me to make spreadsheets all day. <laughs> kind of ironic. That's what I do again, but <laughs> yeah, have to make money. I suppose so. And also, I, I can't, I just can't do that math, right? <laughs> like, there, there's some point where it's just like, uh, I got to either move away from this, or I'm gonna have to get a lot better at math to to do some of that. Um, I can't do that math. math. Is cool. I think, I, I think, um, there's got to be a way. Uh, in my adult life to autodidact myself into understanding sort of higher level math without having to do equations, but I'm not sure what that is. Every time I see um, Jackie S. on Twitter talk about her experience doing math stuff in academia, it, like, tickles some part of me that's like, oh, but how do I get there without going to college or struggling with calculus equations? And maybe that's just what you need to do. Who knows? Sounds hard. Maybe we can just maybe we can just YouTube it. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I I sure hope so. Somebody, you know, people are doing uh, stuff on YouTube to make it so that I can pretend to understand Gnosticism. Somebody can make YouTube videos to make me pretend to understand higher level calculus. I think so. Um. Okay. So, um, because I I most recently finished Psychros, I want to talk about Psychros, even though that's not. Um, maybe uh, in terms of uh, of the market, what people are excited about right now. But I'm I'm very fascinated by that book. So um, it's a book about uh, a woman whose partner commits suicide, um, and then she decides to have sex with some people and then start killing some people. Um, and her thought process throughout the whole thing um, is was was interesting in how challenging it was um i i've been doing this thing recently um where i've been pushing back on oh how do i say this in a way that like makes sense i had similar i had similar issues or challenges i don't know uncomfortable feelings reading um the book for when sarah gerard came on the show true love um being that there were books about women who had like had been treated poorly and were reacting in ways that i couldn't necessarily condone but being a man I wanted to like not necessarily be like no that's bad figure out a different way to deal with it um and instead try to understand uh up until she started murdering people then i was like oh okay well <laughs> that lets me off the hook a little bit but like i feel like psychros is one of those books kind of like catcher in the rye where you can tell a lot about a person by how they react to it 
Um, and so I'm interested to hear you talk about that book so I can, um, maybe start to understand my reactions to the book. Mm, talk about the book. Hey, well, you made a couple of comments just there. We should, uh, we should probably work through those. Okay. Yeah. She's, uh, not necessarily meant to be a sympathetic character. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, uh, it does a lot to unfilter, I think, uh, the way people are expected to deal with things as they happen. Um, there's definitely a sense in which she's being purely reactive. So while she is making decisions, performing actions, and sometimes those actions have great consequences, it's, it's all in relation to him, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's all about him. Um, and he's not even there. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, could we call it a study of reactivity? I don't know. That's a concept that just occurred to me based on your description. Hmm. Uh, but maybe... Um, more so, it's just, uh, I took the concept, I took the character, and I followed her from one moment to the next, until, um, she met her natural end, and that was the book for me. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, uh, a process where, much like the physical universe, you take a set of initial conditions conditions that exist and a uh, certain laws of behavior and form or you know gravity consciousness whatever and you just once everything is set in its place see how it plays out um so yeah i think her her trajectory was set at the beginning in events that happened before the book started right uh, and she just kind of follows through. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. I, that sort of, it kind of remind, re- reminded me as I was reading it. And, and I think more so now that you've explained it like that to Gone Girl. Particularly the movie. I haven't read the book. Um, where she is just sort of like doing these things and justifying them and like the big kind of monologue that she has at the end of the movie where she's like i was always changing myself who i was to to be the girl that the boys wanted uh, and look how my life turned out sort of thing it's like well we didn't see any of that in the movie we started out with you as an adult not you as a girl in high school or college or wherever um and so I think there were some memes around the time the movie came out saying that that movie was like a good for her movie. And Mm -hmm. because the book reminded me of that movie, I was like, okay, so there's going to be an element of people who are looking at the character in Cycross and being like, yes, good. (laughs) Like you're, you're doing, you're, you're doing, you're sticking it to the man. Um, no pun intended, maybe. Um, and, um, you know, getting, getting your revenge or whatever 
Um, and also because I had read it after, I guess maybe maybe the the sequencing doesn't matter, but um, certain stories in Bedlam, like um, Split Dick David does a dick pic on a Tuesday. Um, <laughs> there, obviously, there's gender politics um, that were like in my mind as I was reading it that um i feel like i see a theme kind of like when i um spend too much time scrolling through reels on instagram because my algorithm is such that uh because i'm a dad and i'm a work from home dad that i'm it knows i'm a parent and it knows i'm scrolling through instagram in the middle of the day so it's like, okay, you're probably a stay-at-home mom. And so I see a lot of stay-at-home mom content about, like, invisible labor and mental load and and uh, stuff like that. Um, that, um, like, hits me in a weird way because I'm the one at home. Um, mm-hmm. And... Uh, within the the realms of of the left tube YouTube video essay spheres, there's talk lately about so-called men's issues, um, and so like all of this is is germinating as I'm reading this book, and um, I feel like um, the character is just very she's very familiar because of all that. Um, and like I want to tell her that she's wrong, but I like don't have the resources to explain that. Uh, and also, just from my position, that feels icky in the first place, anyway. Right? Like with it, within the social issues, I try to keep a state of beginner mind. But because I've been, you know, reading the books and essays and watching the the video essays for you know, like 10 years now, like I, I feel like it's hard to, to maintain that, um, and be like ready to just kind of accept, um, certain things. Does that make sense? I think it makes sense. I think, I think we can, uh, we can do some, some enlightening here. So let's see how, what are we working with? Um, so there's definitely some gender politics at work. Uh, but what interests me about how we're phrasing it is that it's being largely thought of in the abstract, right? These are things that we might consider as, you know, divorced from reality, um, that people have come to be aware of, um, that imply a certain set of behaviors that one must follow, including, you know, not questioning the woman, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we shouldn't question the woman, except for the fact that she should very much be questioned, right? Right. She, she's killing people, Joe. <laughs> yeah. She's killing people. <laughs> All right. So how would I differentiate between um, what's right and what's wrong about that book. She's a very sympathetic character um, because there is a um, kind of oomph that people feel like 
they have felt that feeling before, uh, but not necessarily reacted in the same way. Um, there's a kind of catharsis where um, if you've been subject to a, a, a constant oppression through uh, years and lifetimes that if only I could just freak out and kill everyone, wouldn't that be nice? Um, seems like a very relatable emotion to have, but you don't do it. Uh, you don't do it because it's bad. So what has she done? She has, and this is, this happens a lot, uh, I think to me, um, if you read the reviews for Hexus as well, it's a woman who kills a man over and over again. And mm. people take that as a very uh, metaphorical, let's talk about gender relations and power structures kind of book when it's not. It's a very personal experience, like gets let's get down to the nitty gritty of how she is feeling and what she is doing and what are the exact thought processes that lead her to enact certain behaviors that are in no way socially acceptable. Um, and yet we comprehend them not as being relatable, but as a natural conclusion of what she is thinking and feeling and has been done. Mm -hmm. I think that makes sense. Yeah. It's, uh, it makes me feel a bit dirty trying to psychoanalyze my own books. Like that. <laughs> it, it, that didn't factor into when I wrote it or anything. <laughs> right. It's just like, let's have a feeling and write it down. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, if it's, uh, yeah, I sense the disconnect. If it's, uh, if it's somewhere you haven't been, then we can interpret other people's experiences in, a, in an abstract fashion. And that helps us understand. It's right. like, okay, I understand how someone might do this given that. Um, but it doesn't have the same visceral oomph to it uh, if you weren't there. Yeah. <laughs> there, the scene that, that really sticks with me is when she's in the Starbucks bathroom. <laughs> and there's something to me that just like, somehow it feels like the guy that's in there is the one doing something wrong. Right? Like, you don't... Like... That's a situation that feels like it should be so bizarre that you wouldn't allow it to happen because, like, clearly there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and yet, obviously, he lets it happen. Um, and, like, maybe it's just one of those things where, where the reader is like, I know what the moral thing to do here is. Um but also if I was in that situation, would I do the moral thing too? Um, because he like waits till the end and he's like, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and just so, something, I think that uh, instances like that in, in the book are, are kind of what sticks with me is that like, um, and maybe this is kind of like what the book is about. Like your actions impact other people mm -hmm. uh even if you know even if it's a non-action right like 
if the guy in in the Starbucks bathroom had immediately been like, no, hold on, what are you doing? Like, don't, don't do that. Like, are you okay? Do you need help? Do I need to call somebody? Is there somebody, like, is there anything I can do for you? Um, then, you know, maybe she wouldn't have gone on to, like, kill people. Um, but, like, maybe. it also feels unfair to be like, and that guy's the reason why Sam is dead. Um, <laughs> but, like, you can see, because I'm a fourth dimensional being outside of the realm of the book, I can, I can see how things escalate. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that just makes me think that, uh, you have a more optimistic vision for human nature <laughs> than I do. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's, yeah. maybe it's more of a, um, maybe it's, it's not deterministic. Um, yeah, I think I wrote that guy in a way that makes sense. Yeah. That someone might behave. Yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're in a group of guys and, and you presented that situation i feel like nine out of ten people would be like awesome that saves me from doing a whole lot of work uh to get a result that i try to get all the time anyway um so yeah i don't i don't know i just um the i've, I've talked about it before that i'm a i'm a fan of max sterner's work um and and this idea that like you should be selfish, but being selfish means creating a world that is very good for you to live in, um, mm -hmm. which usually includes like making sure that everybody else has a very nice world to live into because then there, you don't run up against a whole lot of friction. Um, <laughs> and so like, I mean, I remember when I was like a, a sullen teenager being like, oh, love is selfish because you just tell somebody things that are nice to hear so that they are happy. And that's like, ugh. but also like now that I'm 30, like, yeah, no, you know what? Telling people nice things is actually just a nice thing to do. And like saying the thing is nice and then seeing their reaction, uh, if it's a positive one is nice too. And like that you can't, I have a hard time like looking down at that so long as it's not like super manipulative, N manipulative to like. I don't know, more nefarious ends. Um, and so that's like a thing that's in my mind too, right? Like, um, I, I, I distinguish, I distinguish those sort of ideas, um, by using selfishness versus self-interest, right? The selfish thing to do is just to be in the bathroom and let the lady do what she wants to do. And the, the self-interest thing is to make sure that this person is being safe. Um, because I mean, even from like a, a physical you don't know what this lady is on or has in her body or anything like that like it's you're allowing yourself a, a very dangerous thing to have happen even though you know internet pornography has taught you that this is actually just nothing different than hitting triple sevens on a slot machine i think you're going harder into this man's psychology than anyone ever has before <laughs> <laughs> maybe uh, that's i don't know it's it like it's the thing that like stuck with me the most about the book um and and I, th I think that might just be 
again, kind of largely because I didn't want to just read the book and be disgusted at this woman. I, because, like, obviously things have gone wrong uh, before the book mm-hmm. to to create the conditions necessary for this woman to run amok. Um, yeah, and uh, there's a very particular sense in which uh, we have to understand that the people who are doing the terrible things are often the people who were hurt. Um, we try to make this divide, you know, the innocent perfect victim and, you know, the perpetrator who, for unknown reasons, has just gone and run amok. Um, but in actual experience, those are the same people, mm. um, which is, you know, a big reason why you might get involved with the people who hurt you because they are sympathetic, understandable creatures with, you know, very understandable experiences that we all relate to. Um, and by being empathetic to people, you can put yourself in a vulnerable position. And that's some a, just a terrible fact Yeah, uh, that we have to contend with. So yeah, you're not necessarily supposed to condone her. Just... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it would be hard to. It, it would be hard <laughs> to seriously, right? Um, but up until up until a certain point in the book, you're like, okay, there's friction here. Um, so let's let's move on then to Bedlam, um, because there's there's a lot of different stories here. Um, I kind of want to ask a, a more um, workshop type question. And um, how did you decide the order for the stories? Mm, yeah, that was uh, very accidental. So uh, how this book happened was Ben DeVos posted on Twitter one day. He was looking for pitches for books. And I started looking around for what I had. And I'm like, you know, I bet I have enough short stories in this folder that I could, I could make a book out of that. And I could, you know, go publish with Apocalypse Party. And wouldn't that be great? Um, so I just, I picked five of my favorite ones, which were the most recent, I think. And I uh, sent them to him to see if they were, you know, good. And he's like, yeah, great. Send me more. So I picked the rest of them. Uh, that mm. I felt suitable for the collection. And I sent those. And when he put them together in an order, it was just the order in which I sent them. Like, it's the order they showed up in the email, in the first oh. email and the second email. Um, but reading it through, it seems like a lot of later themes call back in the earlier ones, and there are some elements of connection to it. And uh, that I attribute just to the fact that they all stem from the same consciousness and i do return to the same themes over time just because you know humans work like that Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. the past invades the present and here we are again (laughs) thanks (laughs) working on the same themes and uh writing the same story over and over sure um why do you think that those are the themes that you work with the most yeah i uh I was thinking about this the other day, um, how we come up with a story idea, like a story idea is 
something very different in like a genre where it is far divorced from our actual experience, um, where it's like, let's come up with a crazy concept and write it out, right? Uh, that's more probably a story idea. But if it's something that you know like stems from your consciousness, it's based on your past experience, it's something you've been thinking through, um, then the question becomes, why are you focusing on that? Uh, because there is, there's a question of, you know, in philosophy, I think it's the the relevance theoretic, like why are why are you focusing on this thing, as opposed to any of the other things that you could be focusing on? Um, why is the fact that this comes up over and over again? What does that indicate about it? And I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> These are the things that occur to me, and when they occur to me, they have to come out. Um, so, you know, I'll get a an idea, and it'll sediment and circulate, you know, sometimes a couple of days, maybe a week, and then it's like it's got to go, and I just type it out. Hmm. <laughs> good. I like that. I think that's, that's a good way to go about doing it, you know. Uh, there's... I mean, there's so many good ways to go about writing good books and good stories and good poems. Um, and that's certainly as good as any. I... Except I'm... for, interestingly, the mm-hmm. one you mentioned, Split Dick David. Oh, okay. <laughs> because that I wrote um, in response to a prompt. Well... I say it's a prompt, but I had a buddy who's like, you know, we should, you know, she thought that we should collaborate and, you know, write something really horrific. And it's like, what's the most horrific thing you can do to a man? And it's like, cut up their genitals. And so she put a lot of research into uh, (laughs) how it could possibly be done. Um, But I, uh, my immediate thought was going back to some body modification stuff that I had learned back in the day. I used to work at a tattoo shop and hang around with some freaky people. <laughs> um, so I'm like, I know how we're going to do this. And then I wrote down that story just in response to this collaboration, which was one of those things that just fell apart over time. And then I had this story and it didn't fit anywhere. It ended up in the book. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I love the, the, the sort of logic stuff that was going on. Um, and you know, as I've made clear, like logical philosophy stuff is is not my forte. But I did, I used to work at a, um, I used to work in person at a public radio station that would receive lots of books, um, for free from publishers. And so I picked up like some entry level like consumer grade, uh, logic for 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 everybody sort of book, um. And so that's like, that's about all I got. I got axioms and I got, um, you know, following threads and things like that. I've already lost a lot of the vocabulary, but I I like that the whole, like, I'm going to turn around your logic onto you, um, and like show you how the logic doesn't work. Um, uh, that was fun like from from a a sort of philosophical point of view and then it's also just i don't know 
the the title makes it more lighthearted than the subject matter is so it was more like a sort of quentin tarantino-esque situation than like a darren aronofsky-esque situation yes don't you know i'm very funny <laughs> yeah um i was also um quite impacted by rape lines um because of i thought the writing was just great um it's i don't know if i have the the words to sort of describe me she's not really dissociating i guess maybe she is um but just like all this other sort of um thought processes that she's going through to to keep her mind occupied it kind of reminds me were you around during like the alt lit type of stuff that was going on in the i guess 2014 2015 were you at all paying attention to indie lit i only know about the echoes what uh i came into it about 2019 okay so uh there are still people hanging around then names float around right but i wasn't there for it nope sure okay that's fine um I, i'll just give you a little bit more context there is a, a writer who published a book through new york tyrant called oh no what was her name hold on hold on i know the name of the book what purpose did i serve in your life uh marie calloway that was her name um and she was uh the book was really divisive and i haven't like read all of it i read various parts of it that were published in other places um but she was a, a sex worker and as i was digging through her tumblr um because i was fascinated by how upset people were about her writing uh she uh said something like i wish i could just like check my facebook while i was working and that like mm -hmm. we didn't have to pretend that i cared about what was going on um mm -hmm. and so it reminded me of that but obviously in a much more dire type of situation um but there's this thing about your writing um that uh is sort of iterative i guess um uh like in the hexus description that shows up on your um linked tree link tree uh mm -hmm. that just the word relentless comes over and over and we're like exploring the word relent uh mm -hmm. and unrelenting and i don't know i like that i i don't have a question attached to that i just kind of like that sort of spiraling forward ness of um not only like wordplay but kind of how the the thought process of the stories goes too well thank you <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah i would i would call that a an example of you know subjecting the word to rigorous analysis to determine you know what it means and how it affects things but yeah there is this iterative um I didn't tell you to read Hexus, but it's like, it's an iterative book. 
um, there's a guy who kills a man and she kills the same man over and over again, like 10 times. It's the same story just repeated. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. There are definitely iterations and yeah. Um, I've gone off on this a couple of times, this idea of iterations. Um, so if we're going to take this back to the very beginning, I would call it a reflection of, uh, of Plato. Um, so there's a part of Plato where he compares time to eternity. Uh, and it's in the, it's in the Timaeus where his, he says that the closest we can get to eternity as temporal beings is through repetition. And he's talking about the uh, orbits of the planets. Mm. And this occurred to me specifically through human experience when I was reading Maggie Siebert's book, Bonding. Oh, yeah. That's a story in there um, every day for the rest of your life um, where the same thought occurs every day for the rest of your life. And that's, that's what made it explicit for me that, you know, sometimes these invasive thoughts can, you know, this is the closest thing to permanence we may have. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, when it's a passive repetition, it uh, feels like something you're subjected to rather than, you know, an imitation of the <laughs> right eternal divine. <laughs> Which paints the eternal in in a less than favorable light, I suppose, if, if you're going to put it that way. I mean... Have you heard of the negative eternity? <laughs> uh, what's your what's your reading on Chorin? <laughs> uh, on what? Emil Chorin. Oh, I, I, haven't, I haven't made it to, to that one either. Yeah, he's got a, a concept of the negative eternity that, uh, that haunts me. Hmm. Is it that same sort of idea that like that like stuckness of forever? Yeah, it's like on the opposite side of temporality, we've got the one eternity that's like pure activity and the divine and it's, you know, it's up there and it's doing stuff. And then on the negative side of temporality, we've got time frozen, time stops. Uh it's just motion ceases and that's it. It's it's not, you know, purified of temporality. It's just temporality that's over. Mm. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't have a good, a good, a good response to that. It doesn't sound like a good time. I don't think I'd like uh -huh. to do that. Um, <laughs> um, and it sounds like a literal hell to me. Yep. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I and I suppose. That's how we get there. Um, and, and let's let's move on to letters to Jenny just after she died. That was the first thing of yours that I read um, while I could not sleep one night. I think like the night you, you sent me that and, and Bedlam, I, I could not sleep. So I read I read that uh, while I could not sleep and it was um, also very good. Um, but I, I I don't know I don't know how if I have anything specific to say uh, to it to like get into the 
conversation. I think I remember highlighting it something. So let's go there and see what I, I have. Um, because if I highlighted it, it must have been good. Unless I highlighted something at Bedlam, and that's what reading at 3 a.m. does to you. Um, oh, perhaps, perhaps I'm wrong, or it, like, left out of my phone. So that it's a, I don't know, is it a chat book? Is it a zine? Filthy Loot has it in the zines category. Um, it was, uh, I guess, a limited run. I, th I think this is another one of those uh, books that... Um, Mike Klein brought up to me, um, being yeah, limited run, being uh, impressed by the the limited run, um, mm -hmm. but it is a set of letters to a, a a roommate after her death, or no, not roommate. It was a neighbor, right? Yes, mm -hmm. because she's talking about the new neighbor who has moved in. Um. I think this is another good example of that sort of like iterativeness um, and, and uh, you know, dealing with the grief that comes from the death of somebody close to you. Um, but how did you, how did you come to write this one? Yeah, I, uh, well, I started and I borrowed a lot from a range of experiences for that one, uh, which was fun because in the letter format, you can kind of hop around. Mm -hmm. And I, I took great joy in leaving out a lot of details because you can do that too, right? If you're writing a letter to somebody, you can rely on their body of knowledge to supplement uh, what you're actually saying to them. So, and just let them make the inferences. And what's interesting is if you, you know, write in that format, there's nobody actually there to do that. So the reader just has to make assumptions. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was fun. Um, so I wrote, it was actually about double the size. When I uh, wrote it and then I, I cut, I just made huge cuts. Um, based on what seemed a little too close to reality. Mm. And that's how we ended up. Now, I wasn't quite done with it when it was Ira Ratt who posted again on Twitter um, that he was starting this, a chapbook series. I don't know if there's a technical difference between a zine and a chapbook. It's just... I'm not the person to ask about that. Oh. <laughs> but... I was hoping you could settle this for me. It's It's just a book with staples in it. That's all. Yeah. And uh, his idea was there were there were going to be 20 pages and uh, limited runs. And it's part of the, the Talented Perverts series. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Limited run. There's going to be a few copies that he's got held back. Oh, Because good. he wants to make a bundle. A Talented Perverts bundle once the third one comes out. And we'll have t-shirts and swag, I guess. And it's it's going to be good. Um, I'm excited about the third one. I haven't read it, but I know who's doing it and it's exciting. Ooh. 
I like that. I, um, as you were talking about the, uh, about, uh, writing in the letter format, I wonder if there is a, um, if that's kind of part of why there's an, a uh, group of people who like reading writer's correspondences so much. Um, cause like people really like reading Rilke's letters to a young poet. Um, and I think like only fairly recently has an edition been put out wherein you get the young poets letters too. Um, and, uh, a poet I like, um, Stephen Jesse Bernstein, whose work is hard to find. There's a tribute website that has correspondences of his, um, too. And, like I, I from from one standpoint I get like if a writer is good you just want to accrue all of the writing you can get which means you're going to get stuff that wasn't meant to be published because there's only a finite amount of of stuff that has been published um but yeah I, I wonder if there's just an element of like parasocial relationship going on there with um reading Rilke's letters or uh whoever else's I get that I went through that with a couple of writers for sure. And it's like, you just want to know like everything about them. Mm-hmm. And yeah. And it's just, you know, aiming towards omniscience. It's like, I don't want any part of them to be hidden from me. I want to take them as a person and absorb them entirely. Um, which isn't fair to actual people, but <laughs> <laughs> if they're dead, it's less offensive. Um, so yeah, I want to know everything they said to everyone and all of their secrets. And all of the thoughts that they hid in the letters, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, voyeuristic. For sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I I wonder if we're going to be able to do that uh, in the post-internet age. Like, I, I feel like I've seen a million joke tweets, like DMs to a young poet or whatever. Um and it it does feel like it would be difficult to like gather up if someone if some you know minor internet writer celebrity were to die tomorrow it would be tough to gather up all of like their discord messages and and create something out of that so i wonder if that's even like an art form that is just um going to become fairly untenable or if it's there's we're going to have to find some other <laughs> other means of um of of keeping people alive totally it makes me think that most of my interactions thoughts and work are utterly disposable and will just disappear um which is you know contributes to a sense of futility but also a nice bit of freedom yeah i the the first you know i grew up catholic and i feel like uh maybe maybe it makes sense that the first kind of uh religious exploration i did beyond that was into buddhism um and particularly soto zen buddhism and this idea that like uh everything is nothingness nothing matters uh and doesn't that grant you such awesome liberation right like 
at, at some point it's all going to be gone. So <laughs> that makes it really easy to just, you know, be kind and gentle and, and empathetic and compassionate because you're mm -hmm. not worried about holding things too much. Um, yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if not everything were permanent? Yeah. I don't have to be committed to a past self or past actions or past thoughts. I can you know, carry on unburdened. Yeah. Um, the talented perverts thing. So I guess, I guess it's interesting to, that you had something that you felt fit with, um, the mission statement. Mm -hmm. Um, and that I agree fits with the mission statement. Um, I, I, per, I particularly enjoy the sentence on the website work that is hauntological, but not horrific. Um, I feel like I have a bad definition of hauntological. Um, I, I, I first came across it, uh, through, um, through music. Uh, there's a website called every noise at once that has, um, it's made by a person who, I think works at Spotify who just made an algorithm to split everything up into a bunch of different music genres and then map them out visually from um, like atmospheric to, to dense and like electronic to uh, organic and, and instrumentation and sound and hauntological is just one of the like weird uh people will argue about whether or not that's actually a genre. And so I like Googled about it and came across some music blog from the early aughts that was talking about how hauntological is. And he was talking about it musically too. Like it wasn't until two years ago that I learned that this was like a philosophical social uh, term that people were using. Um, but he was like, it's, looking at how people from the past looked at the future um which informed how i listened to the music but i don't know if that's like how normal people use the term <laughs> I'm not, i don't know if normal people do use the term <laughs> i don't know if i even noticed the term when i went there i was focused on it was aesthetic this is aesthetic fiction mm. and uh, yeah i wasn't on the book at the time but i just messaged ira and i'm like i have something for you and he's like, great, I just bought your book. And I'm like, it's not done. See you soon. <laughs> but yeah, that was, I was focused on aesthetic fiction. I felt like, you know, that, uh, that feels, that feels right. Yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily horrific. It's uh, not necessarily literary. It's, it's aesthetic. You know, it's got that etymology. I do know that, you know, it's perceptual but uh, it's not the way we use it now has yeah. developed <laughs> okay because I'm not even sure what people mean when they use it now and maybe that's just a me thing like do you do you think you have a grasp upon it I mean we use it in many ways some people just means it's, it's like art you know it's just arty Mm -hmm. or um my gender hears it more often with respect to cosmetics mm. it's like the aesthetics of something um i relate it to the form of beauty 
right. Um, this is the one of the highest forms uh, mm -hmm. that has to do with the best things that we can perceive. Right. So perception, but idealized. Mm. Mm. But, um, you know, sometimes I think we just use it because it sounds fancy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, uh, I, I wonder if we don't use a lot of words that way. I think we do. Maybe has vibes. Yeah. Let's go with vibes. Cool. Okay. So we're at an hour. What would you like as, as a parting idea what do you what do you want our listeners to to walk away with uh, as as we come to a close here um i want our listeners to read and be hurt by my work <laughs> and not necessarily relate to it but if that's nice that's nice so this is the first section of a story from Bedlam called Counterexample, the Jogger. And I was riffing on this idea that, uh, so there's a woman, she has uh, recently had her life upset. Shocker. Um, I don't, but uh, she sees a jogger on the side of the road and her immediate thought, of course, is not to run them down. But then she starts to wonder um, how many good decisions has she ever actually made in her life? And whether her first instinct isn't always correct. Um, and that leads to some rumination and a fatal decision. So let's get into it. I saw the jogger on the side of the road because of her reflective shoes and headband. Her ponytail bounced with her movement, arms bent at the elbow, pushing forward at a pace and with a strain that I knew meant she was nearing the end of her run and I thought of how many points she'd be. It's a game we used to play driving with friends in high school, pointing out obstacles on the road ahead. How many points for the pedestrian? How many points for the stroller? How many points if you could get them both in one go? We probably used it, based it on video games, but we didn't play them, so I don't know. The points were randomly assigned and sometimes there were bonuses for difficulty. Ultimately, the game served to point out the things up ahead that a new driver shouldn't hit and ensure that the driver did see them, which is probably why my first instinct when I saw the jogger was to avoid her, not to kill her and claim the points. But what if my first instinct is wrong? What if I've been following my own impetus to a worse end all this time? It was a question I had to ask driving down a dirt road after midnight in a rental car with the sum totality of my belongings. I'd spent all day with my ex sorting through them, determining what would merit a spot in the car and what wouldn't, what would go to the side of the road instead, what he could sell to cover my half of the rent until someone else moved in. Surely the things at the bottom of the car were decided on more generously. Later, I'd find things down there that shouldn't have come with me, but they did, because at the beginning of the process, when the car was only full of potential, I'd decided to keep things that weren't worth it, weren't worth the volume they exist in. When tomorrow I'd unpack this little Corolla, I'd find a box of VHS tapes at the bottom that were useless without the player, while well, I'd had to leave behind my winter clothes, or most of them. Some scattered sweaters packed between the items that had already earned their place. 
I thought of how cold winter would be on my legs and how the Marilyn Monroe diamond collection wouldn't help me then. What if my first thought is always wrong? What if it's actually harmful? When he asked me to move in, I said I'd think about it, and that was the end in disguise. But I didn't want to think about it. I wanted not to lose my power when I said yes. I wanted to live on with him in the way we had become accustomed, without this gravitational change taking place where I'd agreed to something without resistance, without making suffer through it for it, without the diminishing sense of entitlement one gets when one's demands aren't immediately agreed to. I thought about the future and how it wouldn't hold the mystery I used to make him think that maybe he hadn't earned me yet, hadn't earned his place yet, and how I might not be something he could have. I wish I knew how to love someone without giving that up, or more precisely, I wish that giving it up wouldn't mean he'd cease to love me as he should. I thought of him, annoyed, awakened by the sound of me defrosting the bathroom pipe with the hairdryer, the mundanity of it, the disdain I had to look forward to. And because I didn't want it, I made him think I didn't love him. With the jogger long gone in my rear view, I knew that if I wanted to make the other decision, I'd have to turn around, and that we shouldn't take that opportunity for granted. Some de decisions cannot be undone. I thought of all the time I'd have to unpack the car in my new room tomorrow, one town over where I'd live my new life, how after hiding all the crying I'd been doing these few months, tomorrow there'd be no one there to see it. If I could live through one more day with him, I'd do it. One of the good days from before, when we didn't know what was coming. Why is it that I have to live through all these days? Maybe I do, but she doesn't. I had made the wrong decision, and this time I would correct it.